Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 248 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by three master printmakers, John Sexton, Joseph Holmes, and Michael Strickland, for an engaging panel conversation on printmaking in landscape photography. Before we dive in, I have one quick announcement. Former guest and Patreon supporter Rob Hirsch wanted me to let you know about some exciting news. After selling over 5,000 copies of his book, Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey, including the entire first run of 2,800 hardcovers in the first year, Rob is happy to announce that the first reprint of the hardcover has arrived and is now available. This might make a nice gift for a Yosemite or Sierra Nevada lover that you might know. As before, we recommend getting it from the Yosemite Conservancy, a local bookstore, or directly through Rob's website so he can write a personal note to you. Thanks for the support, friends. Also, thanks to our newest patron, Bill Stackhouse, and to patron Joe Doherty for increasing his pledge. As always, I appreciate your financial support. It really does help keep me going and offsets a lot of the costs that I incur to produce the show, including transcription services, web hosting, equipment, software, music licensure, and a lot more. If you too would like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, we are here for an amazing panel conversation all about printmaking, and I am joined with some legends in the printmaking uh, field and photography, including uh, Joseph Holmes, Michael Strickland, and John Sexton. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, of course. You know, my- Michael's been on way back in the day on the podcast, so he's used to the the fun that this is. But uh, we got two newbies here, so this will be really fun. So I thought it'd be great to just uh, go around and quickly introduce ourselves, and I'll just start out. Uh, with you, Joe. Hi, I am Joseph Holmes by brand, uh, but call me Joe because that's in real life. That's my name. Same as my father. So I'm actually a junior, but but I did. I thought that junior wasn't the best thing for a brand name. So so and, and at one point in my life, uh, my father was saying, "Well, don't you want to be junior?" And I didn't realize immediately that he might take it as a sign that I wasn't proud of him. You know, <laughs> but that, that had nothing to do with it. You know, it just sounded diminutive. Right? So anyway, so that was a long time ago. Uh, East Bay, uh, East Bay area. If I open the blinds here on our window, I can see the Golden Gate out the window, which is nice. And it's a sunny, clear day after a big rainstorm with a little bit of smog building up as usual. I was born uh, in the Bay Area uh, in 1952. Now I got hooked on photography in high school when I saw a copy of a book that was part of the Sierra Club exhibit format series. It was Gentle Wilderness. Uh, so interestingly, the first thing that, that caught my eye was color. And it was, it was largely to do with the fact that the subject matter was already sacred to me without my having ever really realized that it was because, you know, my family had a, a cabin at South Lake Tahoe that, you know, property since 1924. And, you know, when my father was a kid, he and all of them would be at the cabin all summer long. They'd get out of Berkeley High or whatever, wherever they were in the Berkeley school system and, and head off 
to the cabin and be there for like 12 weeks and then come home just in time for the first day of school, right? So that's a nice way to grow up. And uh, when I was a kid, we'd spend two weeks uh, and, you know, and then anyway, I just, when I saw the book, I just clicked and I thought, well, that's a way I could avoid ever having a job because I sort of dreaded the idea of having a, you know, something that I had to go and do that was somebody else's machine, right? So I didn't want to be be a cog in somebody else's machine. You only live once, right? So I also could tell that I would be good at doing that because I could, you know, the compositions were obvious. I, I was always, I was particularly good at geometry in high school. And right? I was one of like a handful of the best students out of 800. So I, I know there's a connection between spatial, you know, they're both spatial you know, comprehension issues. And I just, I don't know, it, it, it just really struck me as being a good thing. And after a while, I I decided, well, that's definitely going to be it. I'm not going to be an environmental attorney or, or a geneticist or study the brain, which were some of the other things that I considered doing while I was at Cal. Uh, and so, I don't know, first printmaking was a couple of years later. That was 1968. So the first, first time I ever made a print was probably 1969. And uh, I was always interested in color. because in the beginning, color was was way out of reach in terms of having everything work right, right? because it's so complex that trying to use chemicals to, to make color photographic prints do all the things you'd like them to be able to do to compete with the likes of a Van Gogh. That, that was just like, that was really hard, but I, I somehow I imagined it would be possible. And I don't think it's really worked out until, you know, 40 or 50 years later. Uh, but at least it, it has, it's working really well now. It's like, oh my God. We'll definitely dive deeper into that. Let's, um, let's have uh, Michael introduce himself. Yeah, sure. I'm Michael Strickland. I am a alternative process printmaker. So I'm mostly focused on uh, printmaking predating silver gelatin um, emulsions and whatnot. And large format photographer. I started photographing, oh, I think almost 10 years ago now. I was in college and kind of found myself rock climbing out in Arkansas and just kind of enjoying the eastern Kansas landscape. And as I was kind of poke around in the Flint Hills the prairie burns and whatnot, I decided to finally pick up a camera uh, and start photographing my friends rock climbing and kind of just, you know, dabbling in it and kind of fell in love with the landscape. And then I was an engineer at that point. So I was actually getting my education at the University of Kansas as an engineer. And formerly previous to that, I was a classically trained musician and then jazz musician. And so it's kind of all the tie in of the arts, the left and the right brain kind of really clicked there for me. Um, the technique of photography and then, you know, the, the artistic side of my brain. I kind of felt let music fall by the wayside eventually. Um, still enjoy it, but it's just, I'm definitely much more of an introvert. And being a saxophonist, I kind of needed other people around me. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to just shove them aside and do my own thing. That just kind of didn't work out usually. Um, but I ended up moving to California and working as an engineer out there. And that's kind of where I had similar experiences. Joe, whereas I just didn't want to be slaving away eight to five, uh, achieving somebody else's dream. And so I packed up and my, my wife at the time, well, still my wife, <laughs> we, we packed up and moved <laughs> back home and it was just cheaper to live out here, kind of in the center of the country. And I figured I'd be traveling, you know, primarily most of my time in order to photograph. So I figured she needed a, a home base and a little bit more than our transplant in California. So that's where we're at now, my hometown. I was born and raised here um, and just actually was born about a mile from where my studio is right now and uh, started printmaking inkjets um, back when I was in California. I had a small little 17 inch inkjet printer, all color, 
um, what kind of led me into the what I do now is kind of a little bit of a long story, which we can get into, I guess, at some point. But just a brief introduction is I'm a large format photographer, and I really just enjoy the tangible aspect of my work. And so I really wanted to do something where I was hand making prints and inkjets just didn't really vibe with me. I, you know, I would just, it was so replicable and I really just wanted something that I had a little bit more involvement with. So I began dabbling in the darkroom, but monochrome really wasn't, again, vibing with me. Like I just really, I was, my vision was color. I was producing, I was shooting on all transparency film. Um, so really the, you know, the, the vivid colors is really what I was after. And then so in 2017, a gentleman named Calvin Greer contacted me, um, who lives in Spain, about a color carbon that process that he was kind of redeveloping his own method for and had wanted to use one of my images to, to like test his profile and his process with and kind of introdu introduced me to the process because I'd never even honestly heard of uh, carbon transfer at that time. I'd done some platinum printing and silver printing and whatnot. Um, but I just, again, I was just trying to find how I could make color prints in the darkroom. Cibachrome was dead. You know, dye transfer is dying uh, dead mostly. Um, RA4 was still dye based. So I really just wanted something that was still, you know, had some light fastness values and could you know be archival. So I, this carbon transfer process was really intriguing to me because it was still completely handmade. I could do all of my own work in the darkroom and it just kind of all clicked. And so then when COVID hit, I finished my darkroom across the hall and the kind of the rest is bit history for me. So <laughs> nice. That's a yeah. great intro. Thanks, Michael. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. What about for you, John? Yeah. John Sexton uh, here. Um, I don't have a, a brand. It's just my name. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, for me, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be here with, with you guys because uh, the topic today is, is something that has been part of my photography from the the very beginning, and that being uh, the print. Um, when I was in a, a high school, um, I uh, uh, my brother had come back. He he was ten years older than me uh, from Vietnam, and he had a thirty five millimeter camera. It was a Canon Canonet uh, with a fixed uh, thirty five millimeter lens. And it had automatic, and then there was this manual stuff that I never tried to do anything with. And uh, I actually, at that time, was was very interested in in race cars. I worked on the the pit crew of a professional dragster, polishing the the car as a, a young teenager. And so I would uh, take uh, my brother's camera uh, and. Uh, uh, friends of mine had photography class. So I'd take black and white film. They would develop the film for me because where I could be with the camera, it was hardly the sports photographer's dream with a 35 millimeter lens. But in those days, you could stand on the guardrail or lie underneath the guardrail. <laughs> it wouldn't happen today. Uh, and uh, so they liked seeing these pictures of race cars and, and drivers uh, up close. And then they'd, uh, I'd pick out what prints I wanted and they would make it. Uh, and uh, then I would, uh, I sold more prints in those days than I do today uh, at the racetrack. I think uh, they were a buck a piece uh, and they weren't very sharp. Uh, and then on Christmas night, 1969, one of my best friends 
uh, called me up. He had gotten, he was the one that did the, the developing for me and he'd gotten his own enlarger. And he said, come over tonight uh, and I'll show you how it all works. And uh, they had to be at night because it was in his bedroom. And uh, <laughs> he didn't get a safe light with his kit. Uh, but uh, he knew enough that red bulbs might make sense. So we stole literally a strand of uh, uh, Christmas lights off his family Christmas tree and got all the red bulbs in that, hung it up. And uh, what I saw happen there was magic. It was unbelievable. I have no memory what the picture was of. It was a whopping five by seven inch piece of paper in a tray of that size on a card table. And uh, a week later, I took money I had saved from a newspaper delivery route and, and bought my own enlarger, brand new, 70 bucks with two lenses. It wasn't a very good enlarger, but it was a lot better enlarger than I was enlarger operator. And so it wasn't the limiting factor. Uh, and uh, I set it up in my parents' uh, uh, attic and uh, uh, made prints and just fell in love with that process. And that's the process I'm still trying to figure out how to do today. Um, based upon that experience, as a senior in high school, I believe I was the only senior that took photo one. And because everybody else had been smart enough to, you know, take it as a sophomore or junior. And so I arrived with my portfolio of prints the first day of class. And that portfolio was a, you know, nine by 12 manila envelope with unmounted floppy single weight prints. And at the end of class, I showed it to my instructor, uh, Mr. Olaf Lee. And, uh, he said, oh, you've been doing some of this before. And I said, yes. So he said, I'll give you different assignments. And through that year, much to my parents' disappointment, um, Mr. Lee, who remained a, a very, very dear friend until he passed away just a couple of years ago, um, just in, encouraged me. He was such a great teacher. He would keep the dark room open in the evening, Saturdays, and whenever it was, I'd be there. And at some point, he said, why don't you major in photography in college? And that's where my parents uh, were not too thrilled with the idea. But uh, in spite of that, that's what yeah, I did. Really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I said, I'll get it. I promised my dad I'd get a, a bachelor's degree in business afterwards. Uh, that never happened. Uh, probably would have been wise. But uh, anyway, um that was a great experience. I learned so much from uh, my instructors. And uh, at a certain point in my educational process, I, I learned about Ansel Adams doing workshops in Yosemite, signed up for one of those, and that was a life-changing experience. And so I still uh, work with film, uh, 4x5 primarily, and still trying to figure out how to make a print that uh, meets my expectation in the darkroom. Brilliant. So, so what you're saying? Fine story. You're all perfectionists, as I'm hearing. I, I like it. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> well, well, I like you. to I like to say that uh, uh, I'm capable of making a, as bad a photograph or as bad a print as anyone. And every once in a while, you know, luck gets on your side and things kind of go right, and then, then you're, you know, you have good days. And you have bad days. 
and uh, uh, one of the most valuable tool in my darkroom, I've said this many times, is my trash can. That That is the most valuable and important uh, tool because that's where the prints go that you know aren't right. Uh, a lot of times you think you've got something right, then time uh, reveals to you that it wasn't right in the first place. But sometimes you just know something sucks. And uh, so I'm very quick to throw away prints. I don't throw away negatives uh, unless there's some physical impairment to them because I right. find that revisiting can be very important. You could make a little sign in all caps reading the enforcer and stick it on the <laughs> <Yeah>. trash can. <laughs> well, at Ansel's workroom, uh, he wanted to get a new trash can once uh, and asked me to stop at the general store near, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Carmel Valley, uh, California, right. on the Monterey Peninsula. Ansel lived in Carmel. Uh, and uh, so I went and at the hardware store bought uh, this trash can. It came in it came in with us the next day. It was larger than what we had. And uh, Ansel loved Dymo labels. If you remember those, these embossed oh, yeah. uh, label things. God, he had every size, every shape. And so the next morning when I came in, he had added a label to the, uh, the uh, yeah. uh, trash can. And it just said, the archive. <laughs> Let's put Similar, this one yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know right. john uh, i had the pleasure of hearing you speak at out of yosemite in 2020 and i will never forget it was one of the most impactful things i've heard another photographer say because i say it all the time now but basically you said i'm not a better photographer than you i've just made more mistakes than you have <laughs> and i was just like that's well, so brilliant yeah, yeah it's uh my one of my favorite sayings I, I saw found on the uh, a sign panel on a church in La Crosse, Wisconsin, when I was teaching a workshop many years ago at the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse. And driving to campus, it literally made me pull over and pull out a pocket notepad and write it down. It's learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have time to make them all yourself. So oh, I'm yeah. sure with all of us today, we'll be able to recount mistakes that listeners might find would be valuable. And uh, because sometimes when people see your finished work, because you don't purposely put out the stuff that should go in the trash can, sometimes in retrospect, you realize it wasn't so great. But uh, it's easy to give the impression that everything works with utter predictability, smoothness, and you always get what you anticipate. And I think that all of us could agree that there are days when just like nothing goes right. And that can be discouraging to someone who's beginning their adventure in photography because maybe they think, well, that doesn't happen to the people that do this for so many years. And that doesn't happen to people that are uh, trying to make a living. It does. And, uh, uh, regularly. So, yeah. <laughs> you try and hide those moments. <laughs> this reminds me of an experience I had uh, rebuilding uh, a five-speed Alfa Romeo manual transmission. And it occurred to me after something went wrong during that process because of something that a guy who was hired by a guy who was hired by a guy did, that you don't really know how to do anything right until you know every possible way to do it wrong. <laughs> yep. And there are a lot of ways to do a lot of things wrong. So I guess that's maybe what comes from the uh, the famous 10,000 hours of whatever it is of 
doing a given thing, not that the particular period of time is, is not a silliness of oversimplification, but still, you got to try to figure out everything that could go wrong. Yeah. Of course, it, it, like you said, it might take too long if you, if you don't learn from everybody else's mistakes, too. Those who are, what is it, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Right. Well, so. let's, uh, let's, let's set the stage here. I have a very simple but probably complicated question. Uh, and and I'll, we'll, we'll start with you, Joe. Why make prints at all? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> if, you, if you grew up in the digital era where people were mainly sharing their pictures on computer screens, that's an obvious question, you know, and, and we didn't, right? You know, so uh, what are we supposed to think about it? It's, you know, a print, a really beautiful print is just can make a, a great object. You know, it's not not just a magazine page that was printed on a printing press that was printed on magazine paper. It can be something really, really gorgeous. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's it hopefully got the photographer's signature on it. And hopefully the photographer is also the printmaker. Uh, and, you know, it's a, there are so many different pathways toward making images. You, it just, you can't generalize too much. You know, I, I, I've tried to be as objective as I can about processes and not, to fall in love with the process when the whole purpose of my original interest was the image. You know, it really is about images. Uh, but, you know, I, I would hate to think that that having spent so many years of my life trying to work out color printmaking uh, and a, a fair amount spent on black and white, too, was wasted. <laughs> I mean, I'm not willing to say that. I, I'm sure it isn't. It hasn't been. But, but oh, things have changed so much. I mean, the mere fact that an iPhone, when you push the button on that little screen, the, the processor inside the phone can do something like what is it, 120 billion calculations in 40 million milliseconds, you know, or 25 milliseconds. And the pipeline, the processing pipeline does a lot of what, you know, good printmakers do to make images look better, brighten up the shadows relative to the highlights, you know, add more texture to the highlights and bring them down and, and automatically white balance if, it, if we're talking about color and so on. There's so much automation now. It's become so easy, especially in color, to make a picture that doesn't have all the usual errors in it that used to be the case in color, that it's just you know, it's almost like the world's turned upside down. Um, so, you know, what can we make of that? I don't know. You know but, but uh, I, you know, I still think a gorgeous print that was actually made by the photographer on really fine materials, especially one that is apt to last for a very long time on display, uh, is a really special thing. And uh, there are lots of shades of gray in there. You know, you can have, I mean, sometimes I sell images to people who are, or, or have a print made, commercially because it's for decor in in the hall of a hospital or in a in a waiting room of a hospital and that's just you know it's not going to be that kind of object so there are you know there's all there's a vast spectrum of output in photography now uh, just as there's a vast spectrum of what people do with cameras it's kind of like writing you know how many different kinds of writing are there you know i i, I don't know maybe me, me. <laughs> three no no 300 uh, i don't know a lot so I, I don't know. Who knows? It's a mystery to me still. How will people think of it going forward? What you know? What will people think 50 years from now? Um, how many framed prints will have been done so well in every respect that uh, they still look great or are treasured objects? Uh, it could be, you know, I, I hope it's a lot. But, you know, John, you're certainly doing your, doing your share <laughs> to uh, make objects that last and, you know, look good for a really, really long time. Hope so. so. What what about for you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the digital world. Um, 
my first camera was a digital camera. So I just, I think what drew me to printmaking finally was uh, just to be able to have some kind of ten tangible ev evidence that I actually made a photograph. Um, it was kind of one of those, all of my 10,000, 100,000 images, whatever I had made at the time were sitting on a hard drive on a computer and sure I could appreciate them in all their glory or not so much at that time, <laughs> on, you know, sitting in my screen. But really, I guess I was just drawn to finally hitting print um, on a, an inkjet printer just to see it and have it kind of come to life. And I guess that's kind of where it, it all began for me, just because there's it was just about as many realms, kind of like uh, Joe had mentioned, how many kinds of writing are there? It's like, how many kinds of paper can you print on? How many options do you have? And it just opened up a whole different realm of technique and artistry that just broadened my vision so much. Um, so me, for me as an artist, I mean, it was just the next step, I guess. Um, but for just me as a photographer and as a person, I guess it was just it, the technique of it really was I was drawn to and which has just kind of led me down this rabbit hole that I'm on now. Um, and just having that tangible evidence. I mean, just, just, I mean, digital photography itself is very intangible in a way, just because it's, it captures an image and goes onto a hard drive instantly. Um, so I was drawn to the tangibility of film and having those physical, you know, physical documents, I guess, to represent my work. And while I still digitize them, uh, <laughs> you know, it still is that, that piece that is just the final final piece of the puzzle, I guess. It's the complete picture. I love that. What about for you, John? Well, uh, beginning uh, with an analog process, because that's what was available, you really didn't have a photograph until you had a print. Uh, you know, it wasn't often that I think any photographers have some friends over and say, would you like to see my negative? Uh, maybe other photographers, people on workshop. Yeah, but let's pass those around uh, with some chips as well because they won't get damaged. Uh, and so the, the photograph uh, from the very beginning at that time, and this goes back to uh, uh, when Joe began to, to have a photograph, uh, something that you called a photograph meant that either a laboratory or for us, uh, the photographer would, would make a print, uh, whether that was a color print or a black and white print. You could imagine that as a photography major, uh, and I was studying at uh, uh, community college at that time, Cypress College, where I later taught for a while, uh, it was a, a really great program, 250 photography majors. Uh, still, I think it's still about the same uh, today. They're... Um, it was the largest department on campus. Um, and uh, we had to, to do studio work. We had to do, I didn't want to do large format photography. I had taken more money than I had, borrowed money from my parents and bought a Hasselblad camera because it was professional. And then the next semester where we had to use the schools four by five. And I thought it was one of the dumbest things I'd ever <laughs> encountered. It was so counterintuitive. Uh, but I had really great instructors when we had to learn how to do color printing on fiber base. Uh, we used Agfa color paper. Uh, we had to do many different things as a good program would uh, subject any of the students to. There was, uh, you know, when you graduated, you were prepared to do uh, a number of things, none of them very well, frankly. 
because you, you know, went from one class to another. You had photojournalism, and then the next period was history of photography, and uh, then it was photographics, where you did tone separations. So when I went to Ansel's uh, workshop in 1973, a really, it was a, a life-changing experience. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a commercial photographer, and my instructors were great. Um, I was very fortunate. But the way the photography was approached at Cypress College was it was a nine-to-five activity. And what I found with Ansel and uh, also the other instructors, the other faculty members, the assistants, was they did photography nine to nine. And I don't mean 12 hours a day. <laughs> it was part of their life. It was nine in the morning till nine in the morning. And I had never seen people who were so passionate about photography. And they were so giving and so skilled. One session we had was uh, all, when you met with an instructor, and this session was with Ansel. It was in the Yosemite Schoolhouse multi-purpose room. We sat on folding chairs. Ansel walked us over to the little sink, and we washed our hands and dried them off. There were no white gloves. And he had brought along photographs from his, person, him, his and his wife Virginia's personal collection, Edward Weston, uh, Steichen, Cartier-Bresson, um, Wynn Bullock, uh, Brassai, color photographs, Elliot Porter, dye transfer prints. And so <laughs> we were taught to handle the mats by the edges. I, Without exaggeration, that box of prints today would certainly be worth multiple millions of dollars because there was a, an Edward Weston a shell print printed and signed by Edward. So that right off the bat, you're, you're <laughs> multi-million. And we passed them around carefully. And two things struck me when, because I knew most of the photographers' names and the, their work in general from having had history of photography course and been interested in it. But each of the photographers was known for some area of specialization. You know, the Cartier-Bresson, you don't, mistake Ansel's Moonrise for being made by him. But the other thing that struck me, because there were just a couple of color prints in the box, was the sheer beauty of these prints. And so as a 20-year-old uh, sitting there with still studies to go in uh, as a photography major, I made myself a promise that what I'm going to do for me is I'm just going to do black and white photography because these prints are unbelievable, and that's what I'm going to concentrate on. And I knew that I would have to, you know, I still had advanced color printing to take. I couldn't turn in black and white prints if I wanted a passing grade, but for myself. And so that really focused my attention on the print. And uh, I don't mean to sound arrogant uh, by saying this, but for me, a photograph doesn't become a photograph until it's a print. You know, the, 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 the human eye-brain complex, as I'm looking at you folks on my monitor, sees a trans-illuminated image very, very different physically, emotionally, than it does a piece of paper. Something, or it could be printed on aluminum or lucite or, or anything, but something that is tangible. We react to those things differently and the fact of holding a print, I think, sometimes can be a, a very engaging experience that transcends the mechanics of the process. Well, that's I would agree. A, you know, I think I, with, again, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a side note and kind of a story. Um, 
when I lived in California, it's, this is kind of predating most of my printmaking. I had an inkjet printer at this time and I was dabbling with it, but I had made a trip up to Carmel with my wife. Um, and we had went into photography West and we were dabbling through all of the, the remarkable photographs that were dotting the walls of this tiny gallery and Julia, the owner, um, it was a, just kind of a slow day in Carmel. And she said, well, you're, you're a color photographer. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, have you heard of Christopher Burkett? And I said, well, somewhat. I said, I'd kind of followed his work every now and then. And uh, I'd started shooting large format at this time. And um, I, so I, I, I'd kind of caught on to his work and she pulled out um, resplendent leaves at, I think it's called it sunset or something like that. It's one of his most famous pieces. And my wife instantly started to cry. Like it just moved her to tears, the photograph itself. And first of all, I said, well, what the hell, honey? Because she never <laughs> cried at one of my pieces. <laughs> but it was just like, it was that one of those first profound moments of a piece of work, a physical, tangible piece of work actually creating an emotional response. So I would just kind of side noting what you have to say. Like, I mean, it, it's, it is a, a true statement when you say that there is that emotional piece of the puzzle where you can actually physically hold a piece of art versus it just projecting on a screen somehow. Yay for fungible art. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a great, that's a great introduction to, to what we're going to talk about today. And, and I have another question that I think is going to get us even deeper into the weeds here. Um, and I'm going to start with you, John, and, you know, I'd love to hear about your personal approach to printmaking and what differentiates it from the norm? Uh, well, um, I can talk about my approach. I don't know what differentiates it from the uh, from the norm. Um, I, you know, I try to work uh, pretty simply. Uh, a mantra of mine actually came from a uh, beginning photography class at Cypress College. Um, when I went there to... I, it wasn't within the, where my parents lived and where I lived. It was out of the district. So you had to have a special permission, a reason to not go to the community college that was in your area. And so I, uh, uh, my photography uh, teacher in high school, Mr. Lee, uh, made a contact with the uh, photography instructors at Cypress. And there was an appointment and I didn't have a portfolio box, but I had a bigger envelope of prints and took those along. And then I took a, a, a written test and uh, had an oral exam, I guess you would say, uh, with the uh, department chair and another faculty member. And they said, well, you can start at second semester. And uh, then I got thinking, hmm, maybe I missed something. I'm going to take beginning photography, even though I've already taken intermediate photography. And I was glad I did. I learned a lot. Uh, it was a different instructor. It was the department chair. I ha hadn't had him yet. And the first day of class, I took it at summer school. Never, ever, ever take photography in summer school. Maybe it's different with digital, but uh, we had a, an assignment. It was five days a week. And you had an assignment due every day. You had to make the photograph. You had to process the film. You had to make the print. It was a killer. And uh, I learned a lot. He wrote on the chalkboard that first day, four letters, K-I-S-S, -S, and said nothing about it. These were big letters. 
<laughs> and uh, I think this was all scripted for theatrical purposes. The time period ended. We'd been given a, an assignment, come back tomorrow at eight in the morning and have purchased these photographic materials, different films, papers and stuff like that. And uh, then as we're getting up out of our chairs, he says, oh, hang on just a minute and sit back down for a second. He points at the chalkboard. He said, that's all you need to know to be good at photography. And I'm sure I'm just tilting my head going, what? (laughs) And he says, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And that was truly good advice because when I've been trying to experiment with a new idea to refine something over the years, uh, including this past year with some film processing uh, ideas that haven't quite all come together yet. Uh, When I get in trouble is when I add complexity uh, unnecessarily. And uh, my wife, uh, Anna Larson, who's a very fine photographer uh, in her own right, uh, is very good at saying, well, why don't you just do this and take out about 18 unnecessary steps? But I can't see that because I've evolved through this process. And uh, so I try and keep my printmaking process fairly straightforward. There are a couple of things that I might do that are different, but I think they are only different because as we do things over and over, sometimes we, we kind of forget the, the root of things. For example, I always, 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 and I mean always, in case you didn't get that, make a straight print. I make a test strip under the enlarger to determine the exposure, and then I turn on the enlarger doing nothing to alter or manipulate the light striking the paper so that I can see what the process of photography has revealed. Because to me, printmaking is a process of communication. And the way you communicate with your materials, and this doesn't have to be a metaphysical experience, is you use exposure, you use the aperture, you use the contrast of the paper, perhaps a developer change, though I tend to do everything with basically one developer. And then you say, what would it look like? 15 seconds at F8 on this grade number two, contrast number two paper. Then you develop it, and the answer is there when you turn on the white lights. And you say, well, that's not what I wanted. Then you begin to have that conversation. And I try and do everything one step at a time. I don't you know, jump in uh, into the, uh, uh, see how many different manipulations I can do. But one step at a time, leaving a series of breadcrumbs and then frequently going back to that straight print to see if all these improvements have unknowingly to me actually ended up being a distraction from where I wanted to go. And I would suggest whether you're printing digitally, and this is not popular, to take an image and uh, not necessarily print the raw file, but something before you begin to alter, before you begin to change the balance, make a print. If your destination is a 40 by 50 inch print, I'd probably suggest a smaller print to begin with uh, so that you can, again, have that tangible object and keep that in the studio as you're working on the process. Joe and I have a mutual friend of many years named uh, Charlie Kramer, a very fine photographer, a fine printmaker, all around nice guy. And uh, I'll use Charlie's line, but I want to give him credit. Print early, print often. 
And uh, it's kind of like yeah, you vote in Chicago, I believe. Vote early. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> I've overstayed my welcome with that uh, answer to your question, Matt. <laughs> no, I like what you said because <clears throat> it kind of reminded me of my own, the way I look at processing digital files. You know, it's oftentimes what I find is I'll get really far in the process of editing and <clears throat> it looks like total trash, right? Like, what did I do to this thing? And so you have to almost start over. So I think it, there's a lot of similarities between the, the digital workflow and, and an analog workflow in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's hear from, yeah. let's hear from Joe on that answer. What, you know, what's your approach? Let's see. Let's uh, restate the question. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, printmaking. Oh my God. Yeah. Your, your personal approach to printmaking and, and what differentiates it. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference? Oh, geez. It just, the first thing I think about is the, is the vast array of processes that have, you know, been the thing, uh, early on in, I guess, well, if I'm looking at 1968, it was already true then that Richard Kaufman, the, the photographer who was responsible for the pictures in Gentle Wilderness had been making, uh, carbon pigment transfer prints. And he only ever made one of each image. He made a set of all the pictures in that book. At one point, I tried to, to buy my favorite one from him. He said, no, I'm sorry, there's only one. <laughs> so it's like, okay, that was a thing at the time, but it was, you know, in some ways it was really good, but it was still horribly inflexible and not exactly practical. And, uh, and then the, uh, the dominant thing was dye transfer. I worked on dye transfer for six and a half years. Uh, five years building my first darkroom, um, the first that, that I you know, created for myself, and, uh, and a year and a half of making prints. And I figured at the time that that would be it for the rest of my life. And then I, I did an experiment with the Cibachrome, which suggested that on balance I might prefer it. I didn't particularly like the ultra-glossy plastic base, and, and there was still... You know, the, the permanence was still at a light fading rate under Henry Wilhelm's standard test condition using fluorescent lamps was about, you know, it's 8% lower with 29 year rating instead of 31 year rating, both terrible, but better than, you know, the chromogenic prints at the time, 12 years, et cetera. Um, uh, but anyway, so I got into Cibachrome and that was the next big thing. And I, I looked at the way the process worked and figured out. Uh, a major shortcoming. You know, you may recall that a lot of times Cebus will produce brilliant reds, but much weaker greens and blues. And I looked at that and I looked at the spectral sensitivity curves of the material and the dye density curve for ectochrome. And, and uh, I just figured that, that if we had the right light source to project the image in the enlarger onto the paper, or whatever you want to call it, since it's not made out of paper, uh, that the the color quality might be a lot better. And so I embarked on a three and a half year process of which I had guessed in the beginning would be a six month process to build an additive lamp house for my big Durst G139 larger, which is a, a special graphic arts model with a five by seven top half and the eight by 10 bottom half of the floor standing Durst enlargers. So you know, it's really, really nice machine for four by five enlarging. And I did, and it, it made a huge difference in the color quality of the prints. It also, uh, up the projected image contrast, which meant that all the masking work that, that I had to do to reduce contrast had to be stronger, which enabled more control over the, the final tone curve and how which colors were darkened more than other colors because you're masking the panchromatic film. And 
anyway, so that that worked out very well, and I was able to make uh, extremely, you know, sort of, I don't know, I would say uniquely good quality sevacrums for several years, which were mostly sold through the nature company stores for a long time. I sold a lot of prints, and, and I was still quite dissatisfied with the permanence, and I, you know, I, I really didn't want to go to all this trouble to try to make something that might be good enough to be considered a masterpiece that should last forever and have it be good for, you know, well, depending on where you put it, I mean, you know, light levels vary a lot, right? So you put a picture in a south-facing window, it can be destroyed in two weeks to a year, two years, maybe if it's really, really good, right? If you put it in a cl dark closet and if it's, it's a sevacrum, it could last for 10,000 years and still look the same. And some other prints could, other processes could too. So anyway, I really wanted something better. So the next thing was to, to move on to pigment transfer, uh, you know, I got to know Charles Berger, and he was working on Ultra Stable, and he he joined up with Richard Kaufman uh, to produce the Ultra Stable materials for a while. And after about two years of working on that, it became apparent that uh, it couldn't be done right without computing. And the the, the power of computers to do imaging work in nineteen you know eighty. Uh, eighty four eighty five was still insufficient, but you could see it coming on the horizon. And so at that point, I, that, I put that on hold, pigment transfer on hold after getting all the equipment, <laughs> all outfitted for that, adding that to my second darkroom, which is here at home. Um, uh, and, uh, well, I guess it wasn't yet. I hadn't added it yet. No, it doesn't make sense. I'm trying, I'm getting the years mixed up. You know, it's like, it's getting to, to the point where it's hard to count the decades. Don't you notice, John, that, that you know, it's easy to mix up the decades now? We used yeah. to mix up the years, but now the decades get mixed up. But, which is a bad sign, right? <laughs> but but uh, uh, anyway, so uh, the thing, next thing uh, was that the very earliest glimmers of pigmented inkjet were starting to appear in the mid-80s. Uh, and so that was a hope on the horizon. But in the meantime, Fuji came along and, you know, and upped their game with their chromogenic material, the Fuji Color Crystal Archive materials. And so the light jet you know, writing to Crystal Archive became the thing for a while. And then after that, uh, starting actually in the year 2000, uh, Epson's pigmented inkjet printers, you know, uh, became feasible. And then it was a question of, well, the inkset has to be made better. The, the papers need to be better. The dot structure needs to be finer. The, the driver tables need to get better. The, you know, a lot of things need to be improved. And I wound up you know, working with Epson as I had worked with a lot of other companies or have worked with a lot of other companies to try to refine the product. So, you know, in the chemical era, I could work on a project to make things work better that would only benefit me. But as soon as we're in the digital era, anything I did would help all the photographers. Right? So I've worked on a lot of different aspects of how digital imaging works and, and made lots of little improvements in lots of different products, uh, which has been very satisfying, but also time consuming. So... So uh, anyway, so I still, at this point, I still find uh, uh, inkjet to be the most overall desirable way for making a color print uh, pigment transfer. I mean, I, I w I'm surprised, uh, Michael, to have, here you've discovered another person who's doing it, right? Because it was <laughs> down to there being only two printmakers in the world, I think, and, uh, one in Seattle and, and one somewhere in Europe. And so anyway, what, what do I do that's different? I, I just... I don't know. I try to make everything work right. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that's hard. Uh, you know, and the, I mean, the particulars, like, if, just to give you an idea of what I do, I mean, for several years, 
I didn't find it necessary to make any proof prints. I mean, because I really had had soft proofing down, you know. But you know how how down you've got it when you make a print that you intend to be the real thing and say it's a 2024, and you look at it and you think, well, not quite, <laughs> you know. So. So lately, or for the last few years, I've always made uh, an approximately 10 by 12 print. And, you know, you have to, if you want to imagine it big, you have to hold it up closer, right? So there's a real difference in how your eye sees, sees color, depending on how big the image is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, I really, it's great to be super fussy about it and to get the print exactly close. It's just, just exactly right. Because there's something about it, like it, it starts to hum, you know, when it's, when it's really close. <laughs> vibrates and the, the, the wine glass shatters, right? That's the Nermrex commercial, I suppose. I always want to talk about the practical details, like how do you look at a print? How do you, you know, where do you stand when you want to, want to look at the color and the tonality of a test print? You know, I, I think it's really important to walk around, to have good light sources in your house that come close to natural daylight and to consider, you know, what the gallery lighting might look like and what it might look like in the future with new light bulbs and you know, so, I mean, it's harder in color because you have to worry about the color dimensions. But even in black and white, you, you got to decide what's the right light level and uh, uh, what's the right kind of how specular should the light be that you're looking with. And, and you know, specular versus diffuse lighting is a really big deal for print surfaces because with matte paper, it's a totally different thing from glossy paper. I mean, forever, I, I figured I would only print on fundamentally glossy papers, but now I prefer a matte paper. Uh, because it it evolved, the medium evolved to the point where the D-Max was good enough, which it wasn't for a long time. And so, you know, I, I love the fact that there's no uh, no apparent surface reflection off the paper. Of course, there is. It's just totally diffused. But but it, it makes the prints more consistent in their appearance as you walk around. I think that the way we perceive prints is heavily affected by the fourth dimension. You know, we if there's a print... Where that's on the wall, and you walk around, and you can see faint reflections in the surface of the print. As you move around, you can integrate that into your head, and you can take out those reflections and see the image that's there. But if you, if I mean, one time uh, I was asked to to take a picture of a flaw in the the D Max areas of of an Epson printing system where you know I was working with them, and I printed a, like a square foot of solid black, and I tried to photograph it, and and it was so obviously impossible to see the, the thing without moving that it just made me think uh oh you know <laughs> this is more of a problem than i've ever realized that that we're relying on our our sense of on on the fourth dimension on time to to actually see through the reflections that are limiting our perception of the print uh of course you can also i mean if, if the lighting is just right you can you can avoid uh, surface reflections, but the, I don't know. There's just there are a lot of issues. You know, surface reflections are one. Surface textures another. The, the exact color of the white of the paper is a critical thing. The D Max is critical. The texture is critical. I, at one point, I figured there were probably thirty different properties of inkjet papers that I would pay attention to, and I it took years to finally find one that I thought was perfect in all thirty. You know, <laughs> just barely. And my second favorite paper has like one thing that it's just a too sensitive to fingerprints and too sensitive to, you know, anyway. So, so it's just, it's just been a lot of details, you know, and in the end, when it all fits together, then you, you know, you can make a print, you can look at it and you can just think, 
oh my god it's beautiful and and there you go <laughs> you're at the end and i don't know i i feel like it it's time to to come up with you know another of, of ansel's more famous Anselisms, where he says you know I, I don't like to talk about the image you know or whatever where he you know he, he's just explaining that the picture has to explain itself you know you can't tell somebody why the picture has mystical powers it, it, either you see it or you don't <laughs> but yeah you know, I, so I can't muster that one at the moment uh, yeah I, I mean there's I think of so many of them you know they're really I have a, a considerable library of Anselisms and I, and I got to say I mean I I learned more fundamentally about uh, or about the basics of photography from him via the books than any other source of information and and I had you know in the early 70s there was a time when when I almost went to a workshop in Yosemite but I just didn't have the $175 and I thought well I can buy the book for you know 25 bucks you know camera and lens the creative approach the one that had the wraparound cover of the minarets stormy picture right right um and that I, that was always my favorite uh, one of the books it was tremendously informative also another good one for people every weston's day books are wonderful all right and book you know volume one and volume two they were recommended to me by france bear uh, morley's wife and she was right of course their their kitchen and their house in berkeley was thoroughly decorated with every western prints and vegetables right and I, I don't think they even had glass over them right so they're in the kitchen there were you know maybe six of them there was a there was a kale halved and, and uh, you know, probably one of the shells. I don't know if it was like the Nautilus. You're probably referring, John, to the Nautilus, the, the front-on shot that was on the cover of the Morgan Morgan monograph. Yeah. Yeah, that that one, you know, that one and the, uh, I think the, uh, the portrait of uh, Karis, you know, where the, where the shadow's down on her arm. Supposedly there were seven of those prints ever made. And somebody said that the, the most... The most that uh, were ever printed from one of his negatives was 11 of Pepper number 30, right? Uh, and, you know, I, not counting, of course, prints that, that Cole would have made later. Well, what about for I'd you? What about for you, Michael? I'd love to hear about your, your per- personal approach to printmaking and what makes it different. Oh, well, I, I think John's approach to uh, keeping it simple, stupid uh, only go, went so far for me. I think I'd just keep it complicated as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I I found myself, you know, in carbon transfer, pigment transfer, like Joe was saying, um, and it just kind of, kind of kept rolling deeper and deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole, and it just keeps getting deeper. Um, so, I, you know, I, there's multiple transfer processes that you can make um, in order to achieve different results in the printmaking process, whereas I'm doing color, so I have to do multi-layer uh, prints in order to achieve the current, you know, appropriate color gamut. So I do actually extended gamut. So I'm in CMYKO and in order to achieve a little bit higher gamut. So that means I have to do at least two transfers. Um, Single transfer you can only do onto matte paper and you can only do it with uh, one emulsion unless you're really careful. And most of the time you could just end up screwing up a print. And then it's really hard to register it in order to get all the layers lined up perfectly. So I end up doing... Well, for two transfers, so a, a double transfer carbon print, um, you get a little bit more flexibility as far as tonality is concerned. So you can tone a black and white print. Um, so if you wanted to add a different pigment level or pigment color to the print in order to warm it or cool it um, or split tone it, you can do that in a second layer. Um, you could also do a multi-layer black and white where you're actually creating different black and white pigments uh, or black pigments, I guess. So you could add a cool 
warm pigment. Um, but if you want to do multi-layers, you have to go at least to a double. But at the end of the double, you get a very glossy print. So what I learned with, from the gentleman in Spain, um, Calvin, is a triple transfer. So what that allows me to do is take the double transfer and then go back to matte paper. So you essentially achieve, achieve the same finish as you would for a single transfer. But what you can do is you can then add an unpigmented gloss layer. So what that essentially will allow you to add relief to the print. So Joe was mentioning kind Whoa. of that, like you can actually walk around the print and you can see all these different dimensions in the shadows and um, the interplay of the light with the print. Well, what I'm allowed to do is say, for instance, I had, I just actually printed this image a couple of days ago is a, a you're looking straight down the ground and it's mud cracks with flowers kind of coming up in the, these mud cracks. And I was, I That's selected, a nice picture. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I just described it really well. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was able to target gloss in order to just achieve gloss in the blacks of the, the cracks of the print. And go. so yeah. the final result of the print, you just get this, it's a matte, it's on matte paper. And you can, by a diff, adding longer or shorter exposure to the gloss layer, you can add that depth and actually the physical relief to the final print. So there's actually, when if you run your hand across the print, you can feel, actually physically feel the gloss Whoa. in the different layers of the print. So it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's kind of, again, just this rabbit hole of that's kind of my proofing process. A lot of what I do is, you know, it, Joe had mentioned that, you know, the, the pigment transfer process was really limiting, um, strictly analog, because most of the time, what happens if you're using an analog negative is your highlights go to absolute shit. Like you just can't, you can't control your highlights. Um, there's ways to do it. It's really, really difficult. And then if you add color into it, it's just extremely, extremely, extremely challenging. So I, I've been able to drum scan it. I have a Tango, Heidelberg Tango drum scanner. And essentially what I do is I make 10 digital negatives. Um, so I do tonal separations and color separations of each individual channel and extended gamut. And I can separate into 10. So I basically like I'm, my, my prints are functioning as a, like a tense ink set printer. Um, so you can have, I have three tonal separations in blacks. I have one yellow, two in magenta, two in, uh, blue or cyan. Uh, what am I missing? Uh, then I have yeah. an orange, so I have yeah. two in orange. Yeah. And by the end of that, it's basically, I have a light and a dark. So it's like, I'm achieving different ink densities in all of these different channels. And I use halftone screens on that as well. So what that allows you to do is when in the printmaking process with carbon, Think about carbon as what you're doing is you're not actually exposing all the way through the emulsion. Whereas like if you're typically exposing in the darkroom, you're burning in an image and you're basically reacting all of these different metals. Usually it's a metal process in order to achieve different tonality. Where with carbon, you have an emulsion that you lay on a piece of support. And as you're exposing that, you're not actually exposing all the way through to the base. And so if you're thinking about what the actual process is doing, is the ultraviolet light through the negative is hardening gelatin that is pigmented. And so when you're exposing through this emulsion, you have to physically transfer this onto another piece of paper in order, otherwise it would just completely wash away and you wouldn't have a print. So that's why it's called the carbon or pigment transfer process is because you expose it and then you immediately sandwich it with a support. And then when you develop it, that what has been hardened stays on that print or that, that support. So really what it is, what the halftone does is it builds up these tiny dots on this. So I have 20 micron dots that these, this screen is built and it builds up these dots throughout this entire thing. 
this the entire image. And what what is the limiting factor between analog and digital here is analog is continuous tone. And so you'd have, basically you would have all of these wedges of different levels and heights and thicknesses of emulsion that you've ex exposed. And then the, the highlights are super, 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 super thin. And so when you exposed all of these highlights, as you would be developing them, they would all just tear and wash away and then you'd be left with nothing. So that's what allows me to do is I just expose to a maximum density with my exposure unit. So I know exactly if I'm printing 18% gray in the darkroom and I need an 18% gray dot, Really what it is, is it's going to print that 18% gray dot in, a, in an array to create an overall tonality. So long-winded, but basically it's, I'm starting to now let the process kind of dictate the overall, the end result. So I can really soft proof an image. I'm, I shoot transparency film, so I really don't do much to it anyways. By the end of the day, like I kind of let the film, um, you know, dictate the results of my image. And then really digitally, all I'm doing is making my tonal separations and outputting to film. Um, so the the cut and dry aspect of it with synthetic pigments that I was using, I it kind of just it's it's beautiful and you can get the extended like the full color gamut of your image. So now what I've kind of been doing is expanding the pigments that I can use into earth pigments. And so I've actually been using ochres and lapis lazuli and pure carbon that I've found from around the world. Um, so I use a yellow ochre from France, a red from Morocco, a green ochre, I guess, I don't know if it's, it's green clay from France, um, lapis lazuli and carbon. And so what that actually allows me to do is it, the, the gamut is so much smaller. So I have to actually intentionally photograph certain scenes within that will render the scene appropriately and then hope for the best because you can't really judge it when you get to the dark room. And but what's beautiful about it is they're completely matte. The finish is just absolutely stunning. The carbon uh, layer is gloss. And so you get this relief in the prints that are just honestly indescribable. I've never seen anything like it. And the metamerism or the metameric color failure is essentially non-existent because you don't have all of these different light, you know, it's, it's earth pigments. And so you really don't have these strangely chromatic pigments that are interfering with different light sources. So you can have it in green awful fluorescent light and you can have it in daylight and it's going to look exactly the same. And I actually have one hanging in front of my 5,000 watt UV light because I'm not worried about it ever fading for a millennia. <laughs> so it's, I've, it's been kind of a fun venture because now I'm just letting kind of the process take control. I mean, the, the technique is there and the, you know, the, the whole process is there. And now I'm just, kind of, I've been able to just let, loose and kind of just have that ambiguity when the print is actually made because I can't visualize it um, both like digitally, I guess. So in summary, you don't do anything different than anyone else? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, in case you haven't caught on at this point, this is seriously hardcore. I mean, like to have 10 channels for pigment printing is just completely and utterly insanely difficult. Yeah, I mean, like ridiculous. And you're making your own uh, your coatings too. You're doing the coating yeah. yourself. So I have to coat you all. Have of, to. I actually have uh, twelve cyan emulsions coating right or drying right now. That's so yeah. why I was so a little you late. Use, you use a rod. <laughs> you use a coating rod, right? With a no, wire actually, wrapped around the, or something else. No, I do. Um, I just uh, basically what I've done is I take a big sheet of glass that's leveled with machine level. Um, yeah. So I have it where it's completely perfectly level. S super um, level. 
And then I, I coat the piece of glass with hydrophobic solutions so it's Rain-X. So I use it in the automotive yep. industry. Um, wow. So it basically makes everything like water just bead. And yeah. I measure the sheet of emulsion that I have and I calculate the volume thickness. And then I pour it onto the sheet and then I use a comb to kind of scoot it around. And then I just use a dilution and where it doesn't set up uh, fast enough. So it can, I can kind of scoot it around on the, the, the plastic sheet quickly enough where the, the gelatin doesn't set up and... Um, then I have it perfectly level across the entire emulsion. Um, so then, but don't you have to put it onto a sheet of mylar? Yeah. Well, I have that's that's so, all. It's it's synapse, and so it's a like a sign material is what I've I've used, and so it's like a yeah. it's about a three hundred and fifty gram weight polyester plastic white, and yeah. then it goes to after it's been exposed, I put it on a sheet of I think it's like ten mil polyester, um, yeah. and then it goes to paper from there. Right. Oh, geez. And your, your, uh, your half tones are stochastic, obviously. Yeah. Right? Second order stochastic. Yeah. 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 I like, I like stochastic screening. I, is that, I mean, that was the thing when I was doing it, we were, you know, I would have to have separations, just four color separations made by, by a lithography shop. You know, they have to use their image setter to make the seps. Yeah. And that was a huge, you know, sort of an obstacle to being able to work fluidly. And it, it, the fact that you couldn't, you know, dodge and burn the image basically, or anything, uh, uh, without being able to work on the files that were going to go into the image center was what I was talking about when I said I had to wait for, you know, digital control to begin right. to be feasible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind so, of what's been beautiful about this process too, is while the digital manipulation or manipulation, digital aspect is minimal, it's just kind of opened the doors to yeah. be able to do it. Um, and because, you know, it's a process that kind of died out because of its difficulty. Um, yeah. but the amount of calibration that you can have in the dark room now with the use of an image setter and a stochastic screen, it's kind right. of like reopen the doors for the process because it's so really very, it's a beautiful process. The print that I loved initially that made me want to do, uh, uh, pigment transfer printing was one of Charles Berger's and it was on a matte coated, uh, voided polyester base. So the print was matte overall, but the, the shadows were glossy. Yeah. And that's a wonderful combination, like you've been talking about. And, you know, over the years when Epson started, you know, putting, you know, making their inks with pigments instead of dyes, there were times when it was backwards and it looks awful the other way around, right? Yeah, you need totally. the highlights to be matte, the midtones to be matte, and the shadows to be glossy. It's a really wonderful effect. And I, I've all, that's the one thing that I wish I could have in, in inkjet printing. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way. I forget whether I've ever suggested to Epson that they do that. You know, yeah. <laughs> that gloss optimizer that just works in the shadows and has the right tone curve to, to build it up. You know? It I really saw, does give you a three-dimensional effect. I saw John taking notes. I'm curious what your reaction to that is, John. Uh, I was just uh, writing down some of the uh, uh, tools that uh, Michael was uh, using in his uh, his process. Uh, it's uh, that's that's way beyond uh, my uh, my pay grade in terms of uh, <laughs> capability. So, Michael, do you? Uh, uh, run your own image setter? Do you do that in house? Uh, no, I don't actually. I, I've thought about it. Um, I just I've actually found one on eBay for a little. I tend to collect big heavy equipment. Um, the first piece of it was my Heidelberg Tango that kind of came through the studio doors about four years ago, um, and kind of ever since I just kind of pieced together equipment. And now I have about twenty five hundred square feet in this building that is just full of really heavy old nineties nineteen nineties pieces of equipment. Uh, but I use an, an outputter in uh, Oregon 
Beaverton, Oregon. Um, and I, he doesn't do anything, but just hit the button for me and then sends me film. Right. Um, right. I screen it here. I do all, all of that work. I get all of the uh, calibration right. all done and he just, I have a step wedge and he prints it to a density and I get my negatives in a couple of days and who's, I can print Who's screening technology? Is it Agfa's or is it somebody it's else? Kodak's, uh, it's Kodak. It's Kodak Staccato. Yeah, it's, they, wow. they, they actually have a new image setter that I've been kind of testing thermal image setting. Um, and it's, they use it for microprocessors now um, where you can get oh. down to 10 micron dots. So I was actually using yeah. some of that for uh, platinum printing because you can get really right. smooth tonality uh, with platinum right. with the 10 micron dots. Right. But with carbon, they're right. just far too small. I'd have to have like yeah. 30 negatives and then an eight by 10 print would cost me a thousand dollars. So I don't, <laughs> I'm not interested. Right. Right. Wow. You know, Michael, one of the things that you started to touch on a little bit was how the uh, print that you're creating has changed the way that you approach field craft. Yeah, and I'd absolutely. Be, I'd be curious to hear um, John and Joe talk a little bit about that relationship between field craft and the printing and, and how that might evolve based on uh, how things have turned out in the printing process. Well, I think that uh, one of the challenges, whether it's black and white or, or color, uh, is uh, the, the transition from either a color transparency on a light table to that image being uh, rendered on a substrate, a print. And uh, I think that was one of the challenges that, uh, that Joe spoke about in terms of uh, Cibachrome and his uh, transition, early transition working with that is, uh, you know, it, you used unsharp masking, a variety of different masking procedures. You changed your in larger technology to get different wavelengths to try and uh, tune the process to meet your expectation and desires. And I think what happens, and I think it can happen at a subconscious level, is as you make photographs, uh, whether you're exposing pixels or you're exposing silver grains, those things that work uh, you know, again, it's, it's one thing to get something to look good on a screen, it's, but that's a very, that's a very fleeting, uh, experience. And, uh, what looks good on a screen doesn't always look good as a print. I do find that if you have a nice looking print and you make a, a decent scan of it, it usually looks good on the screen. It's uh, there's a, there's a difference in the direction of the visual flow there, but you make a photograph and you first, you know, my early negatives were quite contrasty. They look great on the light table, but they printed terribly because they exceeded the capabilities of the printing material. And so then you begin with the help of others guiding you. Uh, to figure out how to make a negative that will print successfully rather than a negative that looks good on the light table. And when you have a success, I think subconsciously, over time, you find yourself, hey, you know, that, that long exposure I made in that soft light, that really worked well. <laughs> yeah, really. And it absolutely, mm. I believe, it's a holistic process. Those things that succeed will 
remain in your working process and subconsciously influence the decisions you make. You may not even be aware of it. But uh, one uh, day uh, in October of 1978, I uh, uh, had been making long exposures, which today are very, very common. I mean, it was, they were like a minute or something like that. Um, and with film, unlike digital, there are characteristics that change the contrast and you have to compensate for uh, reciprocity departure, which is a topic for another discussion. But I made a photograph uh, of some aspens and it was a two minute exposure. And when I put the dark slide back in the four by five film holder, it was pretty well dark. I could have probably exposed another four or five minutes and accomplished absolutely nothing. I developed the negative and I made the print and it, it really pleased me. And I, I still like the, that image. It's uh, stood the test of time. But then I thought back over the last couple of years prior to that, and I thought, gee, I have a much better batting average working in this low light condition. I'm going to make it uh, a working procedure that I'm not going to, unless it's windy or stormy or something, I'm not going to stop photographing until it's dark. And a lot of people, I did, my first book was called Quiet Light. Many, not all the photographs in there were made under those lighting conditions. Some people think that's the only kind of light I work in. I work in lots of different types of light. I'm always looking for the light I think is appropriate for the subject and what I want to reveal about the subject. But that's a quality of light that I really enjoy but the process, in other words, led me in that one particular instance to make a conscious decision uh, because I had had success. And it's more enjoyable to make photographs that are successful than make photographs that are terrible. And uh, along the way, I still, uh, let's face it, most of us, most of the photographs we make, they're, they're not successful. Is that correct? I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I got a lot more <laughs> negative files of stuff that don't deserve to be printed than are worthy of being printed. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know any exceptions to that rule. You know, I, I think the highest batting average I ever had was uh, my first backpacking trip into the Escalante, which was, I think, a 12-day uh, knapsack, as my friend Tom Pillsbury called it. Um, and I had a 50-sheet box of film for the entire trip, including before and after the trip. And I made one exposure for each of 36 subjects and got an entire calendar, my first color calendar out of it that was published by Friends of the Earth and Simon & Schuster and sold 29,000 copies, I think. But, and that was the most of, of any calendar that I ever produced that, that, uh, in terms of sales. But sorry, that was the pinnacle of exposure to do something with it ratios. But nowadays with the digital camera, you, you know, it's you like run I, that same rate. You, you do about 50 exposures on a trip still. Uh, <laughs> oh God. Now, now literally on average because of, so, so this is, is really interesting. So switching from in, in 2006, I could see technology that, that meant that maybe I could be satisfied with a capture after it was all processed and have four by five or better detail. I wasn't willing to go, you know, take a step backwards in detail in order to gain the longer dynamic range and the better uh, grace, you know, uh, neutrality, you know, from shadow to highlight, of, you know, having no cr color crossovers and all that, that comes from working digitally, not having to buy film, load film, unload film, process film, scan film, 
or uh, stick it any larger. Uh, and when I experimented with working with digital cameras, I learned a, a couple of really surprising things, one of which I had over the years, I mean, it's sort of like what you were talking about, I had convinced myself that the ultimate aspect ratio was 1.26 to 1, because I really, there was no way around using 4x5 sheet film that would work. I could buy a Keith Canham 4x10 camera and make one other aspect ratio, but who can carry two view cameras and two sets of film holders and cut all their, you know, cut their film down from eight by 10 in the dark, stick it anyway. So it's just other aspect ratios were not practical except by cropping. And the four by five resolution was always kind of a, a minimum, you know, quality level that I was going to be willing to accept. I'd always, you know, I'd, I I did get to see a bunch of Brett Weston's 11 by 14 contacts at Friends of Photography in 1973 or so. And, I, and it was just really cool <laughs> to see a, a print that big that had the detail in the contact print anyway so i didn't want to take a step back so in, in 2006 uh, i got a, a sort of a test camera which was a, a canon 5d full frame camera and i thought well let's try stitching because i had i'd met a guy and i was doing a couple of days of consulting for the photography op operation down at the getty in, in los angeles uh, who had taught me about stitching and what he was doing was photographing in the interiors of automobiles, for example, so that you could go and look at a, you know, at a Toyota website or something, you could, you could be in the center of the passenger compartment and rotate around and look and see what the whole interior of the car looks like using, you know, VR or whatever. So uh, it turned out that I realized with stitching, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily 1.26 to 1, right? It was whatever aspect ratio fit the subject matter. So all of a sudden, freedom of aspect ratio was an undiscovered country sort of item. And for verticals, I don't deviate from that very much, down to 1.2 to 1, up to 1.25 to 1. But for horizontals, you know, my favorite is still maybe 1.2675, somewhere in that range, a little wider than 4 by 5 but lots of other wider aspect ratios because it, it, it doesn't feel sinful anymore to go to a wider picture because you've added on more detail rather than cropping off the top and the bottom, right? So you can easily wind up with 8x10 level detail uh, with a lot of different digital cameras if you're able to assemble an image by stitching. And you also get to control the projection. So instead of having the usual rectilinear projection that all normal photography depends on, you can use cylindrical or equirectangular projections. So that opens up the possibility of making very wide compositions. You can go out to a 90 degree angle of horizontal field of view or more and hardly see it in the picture. You don't see this awful looming over-exaggeration of, of size and, and stretching in the corners that is just inherent in rectilinear projection. So that was another surprise uh, that came about from just, you know, a, I don't know, a change of technology. The other thing was that, you know, in the, in the early years, I did use some, I used black and white negatives, I used color negatives, and I used color transparencies. Transparencies at best for a chemical printmaking could, could give you about six working stops of, of dynamic range in the subject, from the subject. And the highlights and shadows were both weak, and the lower middle tones were too strong. And if you wanted to use negatives in order to get up to eight stops or ten stops, then you're stuck with making a chromogenic print, which early on was a 12-year print, which is just totally unacceptable. So there were just nothing but bad choices. Later on, scanning... A transparency on a tango, for instance, which I did a lot of, 
you could get more out of the highlights and shadows because of the digital control, you could get up to eight stops. Maybe. And I also used a duplicating film in the camera, which was, you know, intended for use in the darkroom and had, you know, Kodak's duplicating film had a horrible uh, uh, reciprocity failure such that you'd, you know, you photograph the grayscale and the highlights would be green, the shadows would be magenta you know, or vice versa. And it, and it wasn't very sharp and it was pretty grainy, but still you could get eight stops straight as an arrow you know, using conventional materials. And that was good, but not good enough, right? So along come digital cameras. Uh, now you can get 14 stops without even, or, you know, maybe realistically 10 or 12 without even doing a two-stop capture. And so now skies really work. Because <laughs> you know, with, with that Ektachrome E6 films, there was, you know, there were, it was quite uncommon to encounter a sky that would work well with the ground because it was just too bright and the highlights were weak. And now you can make the most glorious skies, whether it's in color or, or black and white. And I mean, or black and white, I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, I used to look at, you know, one of the things that I saw in Ansel's books was this, remember that picture, John, of the guy on the ladder on the side of the giant electric generator with all the white windows around, it was right. a water bath development image. And it was like, 14 stops or something. I mean, it was really way up there. That was a that was a good example. So I always thought of Ansel as being able to handle subjects that went from about two stops contrast up to, you know, well over, you know, 10, 12, 14 stops. Uh, and that was just, that's a fundamental thing that you really need if you want to be able to encounter the world and turn it into the, you know, whatever is the optimal dynamic range on a sheet of paper. And uh, so you have to be able, and in color, the translations are really complex because you have to be able to handle tonality independently of color, uh, control each of them. And it just, everything can work now because of sensors. And what is another thing I should probably mention? Sensors have a quantum efficiency that ranges, to, you know, upwards from 30%. It wasn't even until people started talking about sensor quantum efficiency, i.e. I, they actually catch the photon and turn it into electricity to an electron, to create another electron, uh, that anybody that I'd ever seen anyone talk about the quantum efficiency of film or our eyes, both of which are on the order of a half percent to one percent. You know, it's, it's like, so like, that's why you can see pictures now of an osprey catching a fish in its talons in glorious detail at a thousandth of a second with no noise. <laughs> you know, it's like, and you see lots of pictures of starry skies where the stars aren't moving. It used to be, it was all star trails. You know, I'm saying oh, we had left the aperture yeah. at F8 or F5, 6 or F4 for four hours. You know, so I mean, the, 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 just the ability to turn so, such a big fraction of the photons into an image has revolutionized the way the camera works. But again, it's it's more of a, of an issue for color than for black and white. So there's I don't know there's it's all different. It's better, you know. It's, and oh, this is the other thing. This is an important point about technology, right? Just as the technology to properly do justice to nature's most beautiful features is getting to be good enough that we can really do it to completion. Nature is being eradicated by the human enterprise. I mean, we're, it's not a coincidence, right? These things are, the, you know, two facets of the exact same phenomenon. The, the explosion of, of the human presence, the fact that we became technological, 
you know, more than 10,000 years ago. And, and it's a logarithmic growth curve. And we're at a point now where everything's hitting the fan. And there are now, in two years, there are going to be 8,000 millions of human beings living on Earth. Before we got agriculture, right before agriculture first started, there were 4 million human beings living on Earth. For 300,000 years before that, it mostly ranged from 1 million to 4 million, with one time it spiked up to around 20 million during an interglacial. But we are, it's our, this is all driven by our technology. So the fact that we can make pictures that are mature and glorious is deeply intertwined, you know, with, with the whole, the underlying big picture that uh, we, you know, that is the reason that I selected the, the areas of scientific study that I did when I was a teenager. You know, I didn't do what my grandfather, professor of zoology at Cal Berkeley, did. He studied zoology and genetics, and it actually was a eugenicist, I gather. Uh, I still haven't figured out exactly what he meant by that. <laughs> but but uh, in, in our time, it's the explosion of the human presence, the collision of the human enterprise with creation is the number one story. And it doesn't get, you know, doesn't get uh, talked about that way very often. We're always hung up in the details of what's going on. You know, who's, who's being unjust to whom and what wars are we fighting now? And, you know, we talk about climate as though sometimes it were the only environmental issue. And it isn't. It just happens to be item number one now in the collision between us and nature. And, and that's why I want to become a photographer was to, to help, you know, be a... a uh, you know, a witness, uh, you know, I wanted to speak for the, the silent beauty that's out in the world and try to at least make a few people interested more than they would have been in defending it from us. What about, uh, what about for you, Michael? Is there anything you wanted to add to your, to your answer in terms of how yeah, I don't know. it's, it's yeah, been, ahead. it's been interesting. Um, cause you know, I, I started with, film and it was similar as what joe was mentioning you know about you're so limited in your subject matter i mean my printmaking with this new project that i've been working on has been definitely dictating the subject matter that i've been approaching um just because of the gamut is it, it's so much smaller in my printmaking that i have to photograph within a certain range of colors which kind of leads me to one area of the world uh, where some of the dirt comes from um and so it's you know it's that has been part of it and then it, it this this has all been kind of tied into the fact that i'm still using transparency film which is limiting my my range of dynamic light that i can photograph and therefore limiting the amount of subjects that i could actually even choose to photograph and then the size of the film that i choose to photograph even limits that so i mean my eight by ten is limits me to you know 15 20 miles on a trail and it you know for only a few nights here and there when i go backpacking with it and the four by five is kind of my point and shoot <laughs> and so you know mm -hmm. the, the subject matter has kind of been dictated by the choice that i've made as far as shooting film still and now the color palette of the film that i shoot is now dictating you know the what i'm actually choosing to photograph and so it all, i mean it, it all interplays um and it's all influencing each other with you know probably more subconsciously than i realize just because i know now it's almost you know photography came first and so now i can kind of expect what my film is going to do 
and I can kind of embrace that on a certain subject matter. So if I know a certain light will reflect in this certain way and the color will enhance these shadows and, you know, what the interplay of these different colors. Um, and so, you know, when I, I, I've heard several, uh, monochromatic photographers that have kind of talked a little trash on transparency film because it's very cut and dry. Like it has the, it is what it is. There's no digital manip or there's no manipulation where it is, you know, the dark room you can get in and you can really, it's the, the negative is the forefront of the actual printmaking process. Whereas, you know, for me, I've always thought that the transparency has had such control over the image. And because you can actually use the different kinds of uh, color characteristics that certain transparency films have to their advantage. Um, and so I've always kind of gravitated towards that and used the subject matter um, specifically out in the Southwest. I mean, that's kind of just been where I've grown to appreciate the light and that's just kind of where I've been drawn to. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, I mean that there is that interplay always between the final result and what I'm actually photographing. And I think now more so than ever, especially as I kind of pursue this, this project a little bit deeper and then who knows, I've, I've just now figured out, um, again, uh, Calvin Greer in Spain, he's been working on the same kind of dabbling in earth pigments and, that's where I kind of got the idea from. And he's purple is the, the, the limiting source here. I mean, where do you find a purple rock in the world? Um, okay. So anything with, you know, dramatic purples and magentas are just trash in the print, um, which is kind of exciting because then when you get down to the end of the print, you're, what, were, what was purple in the print is now kind of a bluish green, um, strange color. And so it can kind of, and that's what I mean when, you know, I, I kind of let the process dictate the end results a little bit, but now, We'll go into 12 to 13 negatives as we go into six colors, as we dive into uh, double, you know, <laughs> two spot colors in the earth pigments to get uh, oh, another goodness. another purple. So that'll extend the gamut a little bit, but we'll see. I don't know if I'll go that far. That'll kind of ruin the project for me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can find some kryptonite. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that would give it. your print something. A little bit of That's green, there, right? Yeah, yeah. In the, in the yeah. dark. The yeah. green only can, comes through in the dark. Call it the super spot color. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to ask one more question. Um, hopefully, I think you all have very different answers to this. Uh, and the question is like basically, where does your balance lie between the creative process? And the and predictable results when making a print. In other words, is your process methodical and repeatable, or is each print unique? And I'm guessing your answers will be very different. <laughs> Who wants to go first? I'll start. Uh, okay. Because I, uh, I kind of I've, I've dabbled in this a little bit in the last couple of things that I've said. Because um, I do. I mean, I have my my left and my right brain constantly working. I mean, I have the technique of my engineer background uh, that's kind of constantly wanting predictable results um but the process of my printmaking kind of just eventually takes hold and does its own thing usually um so i mean i can i can predict 18 percent gray in my dark room within i'd say one percent um usually so i can kind of if i can build i can build an emulsion to predict 18 percent gray almost precisely 
um, but I am actually trying to embrace a little bit more of the unpredictability of that's why I've kind of been dabbling in the earth pigments because it does take on such a unique color palette. Um, you don't get the chromaticism that you would with synthetic pigments and tr traditional CMYK printing. So you don't get the, the gamut and the extended color range that you normally would. So there is that fine line, I think, that is exciting. Um, it's also extremely frustrating because it is completely unpredictable in certain ways. Um, so you, I mean, that the like both of you had mentioned, the trash can kind of be your best friend at certain points. But when it takes you nine days to make a print, you know, it can kind of get to be a little frustrating uh, at the end of the day or into the week and a half. Um, but it is, you know, it, it. I think that's the exciting part. And I think that's what's actually been kind of beautiful about the last two years um, for me, at least in my life, is I haven't been, I've been used to traveling the world for the last six years of my life. And then when COVID shut down the world, I just stuck myself in a dark room and got to work. And I kind of lost myself in the, the process. And it's been really eye opening for me to just dabble through all of these different techniques and find something that works for me. And it's really, I mean, I haven't shot nearly as much film as I've been wanting to shoot for the past couple of years, but it's really been able to, my creative vision has just grown exponentially, I feel like, over the last two years since I've really been working in this process. And I am excited to see where it goes because it is such an unusual, unpredictable result. I mean, I it, it it's been overwhelmingly exciting and daunting at the same time so <laughs> yeah what about for you john well i think that um i like to keep my general approach to printmaking somewhat systematic like i said i always make a straight print um if i were using digital I would always make a straight print because I want that pro I want to have that foundation. I want to go back to that and each step of the way I try and have it I only make a change in the print when I have a an emotional or visual response that something is is missing. And I try to do things one step at a time. Um, that being said, I've learned many years ago that if you, let's say, I'm, in fact, I, I make a lot more than one straight print. I, I make every negative is different, but if it's a new negative, I probably make uh, 15 or 20 straight prints, changing exposure, changing before I begin it's much easier to get things right with global controls. If only if I, uh, you know, some people have a desire to make, start with film and then make a digital negative that has all of the adjustments so you can make straight prints. It's very efficient. Uh, it can be very beautiful. It could be, if well done, probably could not be discerned from a print made from the camera negative. And if it works, great. Uh, I think that there are many, many different approaches that one can take. But if it were me, once I've made that negative, 
I then, you know, a few prints in, I'd say, gee, I wish the lower right-hand corner was a little darker. And I'd start burning <laughs> and dodging from that negative. But uh, let's say I've got an, a straight prints up and I have a 13 and a half second and I have a 13 second. And I'm looking at them. And by the way, speaking of one of the things, I've used the same print viewing light. I changed the bulb, but I use the same type of bulb. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, just metering a Kodak gray card and my spot meter. I keep it within a, about a half stop. And I've used that since 1980. Because the print from the wet print to the dry print, for those that haven't worked in a darkroom, changes dramatically. Well, it changes noticeably. I think it's a dramatic change, but uh, that gives me the ability to anticipate if I'm using materials I'm familiar with, what the dry print may look like. But when I print a, a, a negative, I never get a good, my goal is not to get a good uh, finished print the first day. I, my goal is to come out of that dark room that knowing that I want to do something more tomorrow, but I need to give myself the distance the uh, of objectivity. I want to see the print dry. I want to handle the print. I have particular places in my studio where I have, again, a controlled lighting situation. Um, but uh, let's say that 13, 13 and a half, that's a very small percentage of difference in exposure. And let's say my, my brain says to me, okay, I'm going to do the 13 and a half second. But between turning off that white light and taking about three steps from the viewing area to my enlarger, something inside of me says, should be 13.2. I learned long ago, always trust your intuition because the emotion that uh, Michael's wife experienced in looking at Christopher Burkett's beautiful print, that had nothing to do with tenths of a second. It had to do with the vision that Christopher had, the execution through that process. And it doesn't matter whether it starts with grains, pixels, or whatever. It's when everything works together and the photograph becomes something that will remain with you. And I have seen prints, sometimes unlikely prints, photographs I would never make myself, but I remember seeing that print, whether it was on the walls of a gallery, a museum, or with a workshop participant showing some of their work to me during a workshop. These things etch themselves into your being. Ruth Bernhard, a wonderful, inspiring photographer that I had the opportunity to study with in 1974 at a workshop. And then later, uh, we taught a number of workshops together. And uh, she passed away a few years ago at a little over 101 years of youth. And she had a wonderful saying. She said that the signature of the photographer should be visible in the print before you're close enough to see the signature of photographer on the map. And all of these things that we're talking about, I believe, are steps. And each of us have to blend things together to allow ourselves the freedom and good fortune comes in with this as well. You have to have, I've never met a photographer who didn't say that when they made a really good photograph, luck wasn't on their side. 
because sometimes you think you've done everything right and it ends up being a complete disappointment. But that's what it's all about. And uh, another piece of advice that has worked for me over the years uh, is, you know, the apocryphal story of the man standing on the street corner in New York City. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, <laughs> practice, <laughs> practice. <laughs> and it's a lot more fun practicing when you have occasional successes. Well said. That's like when uh, I like that because when I was a musician and I was studying, um, I remember my I was a jazz musician and my instructor would always say at the end of every practice session, because, you know, I, I went to boarding school for music and that was all we did. And so we would practice, we'd be in, in the woodshed, as the, as the saying goes, for, uh, you know, eight to nine hours a day. And he would say at, at the end of every practice session, you need to just have a little jam session just to have something where you can feel confident about going to bed every night because it's just that little ounce of success because you can just beat the hell out of yourself all day doing whatever you were doing for those eight hours a day but he says if you have 20 minutes a day of just letting loose having fun having some success he said it'll it'll carry into the next day and you can kind of start fresh i love that Joe, did yeah. you have anything else you wanted to add to that particular yeah, question? Well, just as far as the target goes, I mean, my, yeah. my habit is to try to constantly zoom in on whatever I think is, you know, the best revelation for a given image. And, and uh, usually what happens that makes me want to update my master file and change it is that the technology is actually improved. You, know, you can get more detail, you get, you know, less noise and Sometimes, you know, not, not infrequently, I'll see something and think, well, it, it really should be a little brighter. It should be a little more color, a little less color. It should be a little brighter in this corner, all those things. Uh, but I, I, I don't want each print to be different. I want each print to be as good as I can make it, you know. So uh, that, in theory at least, means zooming in on one final target. And that's, you know, one of the great things about uh, Epson's inkjet printers is that the professional printing system is highly consistent over time. The inks, the ink batches that you use are very carefully matched to others. So, hey, you know, once you build profiles and stuff and get all your setup and done and everything just right, there, there isn't going to be a whole lot of difference. I mean, color management in general has been just incredibly key to making the whole thing work. If you try to do color in a digital process without successful color management, it is a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, like working on a book, uh, which I may have produced three books of my pictures and uh one of them let's see the first one was conventional process transparencies just scanned by somebody else and you know in italy and off you go serico books 1982 then uh, the next one uh the best thing i could do was to make sevachromes to get my you know control into the image and then have the sevachrome scan and that that was done I, that's where i saw you you know retouching john i a, a, Copy. That's where we met. Yep. Yeah, right, right. You were you were seeing in the booth, you know, fiddling, you know, doing the last minute spotting on on you know Aspen's Northern New Mexico, nineteen fifty eight horizontal, and which is by the way my favorite black and white landscape photograph of all time. <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know Gardner Litho. Uh, well, let's see, what was it? Oh, I know what it was. It's the way that separations happen to work out from sebacombs just wasn't good. I mean, if the way they work out from chromogenic prints is remarkably good. Remember Cole Weston's book, Nineteen Photographs. It looks great, and 
you know, that book was made by him giving his 8x10 color negatives to ProColor in San Francisco, which is the same lab that processed my film for many years. And they just made prints, which, you know, didn't have very many levels of control. You get your choice of two grades of contrast in the printing paper and some dodging and burning exposure and color balance, and that's it. They didn't do any this anyway. So, I mean, Joel Meyerowitz's uh, Cape Light was similar in that regard. I think a lot of the great color books that were fairly early, that is the chemical era, that worked well were ones that started with chromogenic prints. But so chromogenic prints had their problems as far as being the ultimate output because their light fading wasn't so good and their dark fading wasn't so good either. So anyway, so, oh, sorry. So anyway, the target lost my train That's right. I mean, you were talking about... um... Yeah. Color management, which is something. Oh that yeah, the color management. <laughs> right? So I mean, color management just connects everything. I mean, it makes it work. And and that of all the things that I had to learn to make digital imaging work well, that was by far the biggest. And in part because I was learning it at the at the beginning while it was still being developed, I spent actually more time and effort learning color management than I did getting my undergraduate degree at Cal. And literally, it was like five years worth of study. And now I figure that, you know, I, I teach my students color management in, you know, in a few hours, <laughs> what they really need to know. And it's just all gotten to work a lot, a lot better. It had a lot of subtleties and there were a lot of things to figure out. Uh, I got to work with some of the great masters of color management along the way, developing software and, and helping them with their, you know, with their documentation and stuff and suggesting improvements. And that was, that was fun. But this whole process has taken a lot of time and I've managed to produce quite a bit of work, but not as much as I would have if I didn't have to always be changing processes every few years, you know? So, but, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I just, I hope uh, people make really, really amazingly good pictures. And there are more people now. I mean, I, I, one of the things I used to do was to try to count how many people there were in the world that had ever made one landscape photograph that I thought was really good, right? And that number, I, I remember that number being maybe 50, where there was at least one picture. And now, I mean, of course, it's got to be, it got to have increased exponentially. But it's still, it still is a pretty select group of people, you know. But now I tend to look at people who do work that I consistently have a high regard for. And you can whittle the number down pretty fast <laughs> by doing that. But it's still, it's gotten so much easier. Uh, you can, you know, I mean, a, a, a full frame camera can do a lot of damage, as I like to say. You know, it doesn't have to be a big camera anymore. Uh, so That's anyway, right. it's just, it's interesting how things have gone. I think photography, making a, making a picture has gotten easier. Yeah. Making a photograph yeah. <laughs> still right. is a challenge. Yeah. And uh, those are two different uh, activities. Um, and one thing I'd like to, you know, just because I know we're wrapping up here, is remind listeners that all of us, the four of us that are sharing today under uh, Matt's invitation, we all began photography. If you think back, what is it, like four to five hours ago when this began, uh, we talked about our background. And we didn't use these words, but I think for each of us, we began photography because we really enjoyed making photographs. They weren't good photographs. They were the best we could do at the time. We've all made a lot of mistakes. We've all had a few successes and we're all going to make a lot more bad photographs. People say, you know, I, I don't need to make more photographs because I've got plenty of bad ones. And I know if I continue making photographs, 
I'm going to make bad ones. But what I would like to do is make some more good photographs. And so I always like to remind people when you're maybe a little depressed and maybe you think, well, I, will I ever have success at photography? First of all, demand more of yourself and then look at back at your old work and see the progress that you've really made and go back to that original motivation. Enjoy yourself when you're making photographs. Enjoy the process if you're making prints. And I think the three of us, the four of us would encourage you to think about, you want to be a better photographer? Print your work. Yeah, absolutely. Live with it. Put it on the wall. Yep. Look at it every day. Don't put it in the living room if you don't spend time in the living room. Put it in your office. Live with it. And guess what? Some of it's going to wear out. And some of it is going, you're going to say, I could change this. I could make this better. But enjoy yourself because I try to work hard at photography, but I do a lot better work when I play. And I like to play really hard. And if I play, I play to win, but I enjoy the process. So the process should be a reward in and of itself. I don't know that we could end on a better note than that. Oh, I'm sure somebody has a better note. Oh, that was pretty good. <laughs> Michael, pull out yeah. the sax yeah, right? and you can uh, play us off. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. gentlemen, this has been really fun. I think, you know, hopefully it was, you know, the, what we had in mind. I, I think just that casual back and forth worked really well. So I just wanted to thank all three of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to, to do this episode. Yeah. Thanks for putting it together. Welcome. This was a fun. pleasure. Thanks, this was man. fun. Yep. Nice to meet you, Michael. Yeah. Likewise, you guys. Yep. Yeah. Well, thanks to John, Joe and Michael for a great conversation on this week's episode. I know we were not able to get to all of the listener questions that you provided to me over on Facebook. However, let's keep the conversation going on social media and on Patreon. We will also do a clubhouse after party for this episode, so be sure to look out for that. Both John and Michael have a special offer for listeners. First, you can subscribe to John's popular email newsletter by sending an email with your name to subscribe at johnsexton.com. John publishes about four to six newsletters every year and never shares contact information with others. You can take a look at John's previous newsletters by checking out the link in the show notes. Also, John is offering podcast listeners 10% off on all items at his Ventana Editions online store. Simply use the coupon code MATTPAYNE10 during checkout. Learn more about John and his photography at johnsexton.com. Next, Michael is offering podcast listeners 10% off his incredible Platinum Palladium printing service. There is no code for this, but you can just mention that you heard him on the show. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can go to michaelstricklandimages.com forward slash platinum-palladium-printing-service. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.